Product managers give 100% of themselves to their customers. But who's there for the PM? The Product Management Center at the University of Washington. It's a global hub for knowledge, community, and impact. I'm Jeff Schulman, founding director of the Product Management Center and your host on this show, How to Succeed in Product Management. Each week, I'm joined by my co-host, Red, and some of the best product managers in the business. Together, we're having candid conversations that help you understand the challenges that a product manager faces, how they overcome them, and the tools and frameworks that will help you thrive in the role. So let's start the show. Welcome, everybody. My name is Jeff Schulman, and I'm the founding director of the Product Management Center here at the University of Washington. We are on a, on a mission to develop a more diverse, inclusive, and skilled product management community. And part of that is bringing access to some of the greatest product management minds in the business. And today, another part of that is we are going to talk all about product equity and product inclusion. And we are doing this with the, tell me if I've gotten this right, but the chief of product inclusion at ADP, of course, speaking for your own personal personal opinions, but did I get your title correct, Giselle? You did. You got it. All right. So Giselle, we're going to talk about product equity, product inclusion, and, and you and I will exchange some best practices. And then Red here is going to welcome people on stage if they have questions or comments. And also Red, my understanding is you've, you've, you're passionate about this too. You've got some knowledge to add. So tell me, Red, why are you passionate and excited for today's conversation about product equity and product inclusion? Oh, well, first of all, this is somewhat God, this is almost a sense of humor to say, but it's biased. My answer is biased, Jeff. God, I, I was like, wait a minute, can I say that? When the Product Management Center first started at University of Washington, it was around the time that I was having my third kid under six years old. So, you know, there's no question that there's a passion within me, not just for what UW was doing, but for product management and inclusivity in general. And the main reason is I spent the last decade working with the managers across the globe. And what I continue to find as representative of product management in my business and the people I worked with was not exactly what you would find when you ran a Google search. Like literally, if I were to search equity and product management, all I would find is the negotiation tactics for how to get great equity when you first start as a product manager at a startup. That's still today, Giselle. It's a pretty sad state. So, you know, I'm very excited not only for the opportunity of what we can do for the space, but most importantly, it's an underserved market of people out there who theoretically could become great product managers, but that front door isn't really obvious to many or is purposefully made not obvious to many. And whether it's on purpose or not, we're here to create that proverbial door to product management like other industries have done for engineering or sales. So with that in mind, um, I'm a supporter, a fan. And Jeff, no matter how much credit you try to give me, my friend, this is not about credit where it's due. It's about the results. And from what I've seen at UW, it's continuing to be an uphill rocket ship of opportunity. So thank you for the opportunity to collaborate together today. Back to you, Jeff. All right, Red, thanks for joining us. Now, Giselle, before we dive into product equity, product inclusion, and some of the trends you're seeing, I just want to know a little bit more about you. Tell us about how or your journey to becoming the chief of product inclusion at ADP. I mean, first of all, I'm a new fan of Red after that introduction. Uh, and, you know, just a little bit about myself, I'll say that I, uh, prior to this role and even prior to joining ADP, my work has been mainly around the future of work. And so I've been a thought leader and uh, speaking a lot about how do you use 
emerging technologies and, you know, aspects such as artificial intelligence, machine learning, data analytics, automation, all those kind of things to make the future of what the workplace, the workforce and the work that's being done uh, better for all people. And this is something that I've been doing for some time. The past few years, especially with the global reckoning of you know, inclusion and issues that exist with widening gaps of uh, issues around diversity and, and equity, et cetera. I asked myself, what was I doing with my time? How was I best spending and exerting my energy and efforts? And I started to use that energy and filter it towards how can I make a difference? And so I took the platform that I already had. I took the work that I was already doing around the future of work. And I would speak to regularly, you know, executives and HR practitioners and things like that. And I have that stage, I have the audience. And so I started to change it to talk about an inclusive future of work. And ever since that time, I have been completely focused on how do we make sure that this whole future of work business, when we're talking about even, you know, all the aspects of technology that I just mentioned, how do we ensure that AI, for example, is being used, or and even data analytics, how do we ensure that it's being used in a way that promotes diversity, equity, and inclusion? And how are we making sure and governing around it to ensure that it's not being a weapon against diversity, equity, and inclusion? And so there's been that aspect that I've been doing. And I, I you know, came into this role at ADP. It was a role that never existed before. So for the first time ever, we are now thinking about you know, inclusion in our products in a very intentional way. And we're thinking about how do we equip the people in, throughout our organization to make sure that they're helping as well. So all new things and efforts, but the work is vast. It's very, it's very vast and the opportunity is even, is even larger. Love the story. Love the mutual admiration society we're building here on the stage. And Giselle, again, we're going to kind of dive into your experience and, and what you're seeing. I'm also here, happy to answer questions. We've developed some inclusive product management programming here at the University of Washington. Inclusion is very important. I personally believe, and the data seems to suggest this quite a bit, that inclusion is not just a moral imperative that's worthy, worthy pursuit in its own right, but it's a strong, it's a wonderful means by which you could achieve standard success outcomes that product managers have typically sought historically, whether that's success for your customer and success for your business. But Giselle, I want to hear from you. What does inclusion exactly mean to you? And is there anything that you could help us understand of what inclusion doesn't mean to you? Because I don't want to overstep, but I believe it's still somewhat of an ambiguous term, what it means uh, for product inclusion and inclusion in general. Inclusion to me is definitely about thinking about all people. And it sounds so basic. It sounds so oversimplified, but it is that. It's asking yourself the question, when we are creating, and, and I talk about inclusion from like a product aspect, for example, when we're creating a product, who's left out of that experience? Who did we not think of? Who did we not include in the ideation, to the research, to the testing, to all of that, right? Even to marketing of the product. Did we have people weigh in of, of diverse representation? And are we making sure to include the nuances of those diverse representations? For example, when we think about people with disabilities and how we design something for someone with a disability, we think always in terms of accessibility, right? But there's more to it. Inclusion would be, did someone with disabilities help to, in the ideation phase? Did they help and did we you know, test this? with people with disabilities before we ever put it out into the world and even before we marketed this product? Have we considered 
even outside of the bounds of quote unquote accessibility, have we considered people with disabilities in all sorts of different experiences, right? So representing them, for example, in if you have an analytics tool that's going to surface up insights on like gaps of areas of you know diversity that an organization can work on, well, did we include people with disabilities in that filter in that market? You know, so things like that is is what I think about when I think of inclusion and and what it is not. Interestingly enough, inclusion is not just about the diverse audiences. It's also about those who are not as diverse or what we would quote unquote consider is not being diverse, right? Everyone has a certain level of diversity to them. And I would say that thinking about all means that you're also thinking about the majority groups. You're also thinking about the groups who oppose any inclusion efforts and think that it's a polarizing or political topic and don't want to have anything to do about it. Well, are you in our case, when we're talking about product development, are we also thinking about that group of people in that audience? And that is hmm, that is a very different way to approach the topic, because I noticed that when I'm addressing this even in you know my organization you get groups of people who are like trying to champion this and they want to almost go on this this effort and cause and go out of their way to say yes I want to be a part of this but they don't realize that there's also this other segment of people that we also have to consider and so that could be anything as simple as saying you know what we're going to create this inclusive product and by doing so we might for example collect a sexual orientation preference or anything, right, around those lines that maybe certain groups of people may not follow because of religion or because of just personal preference. They might say that's not what we want to do. Well, we have to design for them as well. So how do we do that? We listen to their feedback and we also create an option so that they can turn that feature off. And in that way, you're being inclusive to them as well. And so I want to ask kind of a pragmatic question because you raised an interesting point that there are some people who are skeptical of inclusion, product inclusion, and even broader inclusion efforts. Do you make the business case? Like, do you try to hammer home like the business case behind these decisions? Or does, I don't want to lead too much in this question, but does it ever feel or do other people react that when you make the business case that you're cheapening the human case of people's lives being dependent on what you're doing? I love that question. I, you know why? Because the way that I build the case is a multifaceted, multidimensional case. It is not just one or the other, and it doesn't have to be. You don't, just because doing things with inclusion is the right thing to do, right? It doesn't mean that that is the only part of the story. It is the right thing to do. It makes sense with business, right? It will diversify your markets, your reach. It'll help you be more, you know, inclusive of people. It's something I say a lot is we often try to focus on getting the money and the talent that comes from all types of people. We want to make a sale. We want to bring in, you know, all kinds. We want to sell to as many people as possible. But we don't necessarily want to design for as many people as possible. We don't necessarily want a message for as many people as possible. And that shouldn't be the case. So in my case, the way that I talk about it is it is all things. It is because it's the right thing to do. And as a Afro-Latina woman of color who has an unseen disability of dyslexia, and, and there's so many things that I stand for and applaud when it comes to, you know, I live and breathe. This is diversity, inclusion, equity. This is the right thing to do and what we should do. But it is also on the business side, I understand that we need to talk about that. So multidimensional. 
All right. So I don't know how to ask this question or raise this thought, but when we started the Product Management Center at the University of Washington, we started it because product managers have so much power. Product managers change lives because they prioritize innovations and what gets developed. And they could either prioritize the the innovations that improve the lives of the few, or they can improve the lives of the many. And what's fascinating is the more you dive into this and the more you open your eyes is just how many people feel unseen, unheard, uninvited by the simple product decisions that get made. That somebody who you know isn't familiar with this or hasn't been kind of studying this or thinking through it and just lets their own biases run the innovation process, you just don't realize it until you open your eyes just how many people feel unseen, unheard, and uninvited by the innovations that get developed. So there's a question in there somewhere, but I'd love for you, Giselle, to comment. Have you seen that as well? And have you been able to take some of those stories and translate them into action among people who may not have realized the importance of product inclusion? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Where do I start? What a packed question. Jeff, you're killing me. Let me see. <laughs> I will say that one of the main imperatives that I have is to educate all of the people that touch a product from the time that we design it, actually from the time that we research about it, from the time we design it and user experience and user interfaces, from the time that we try to market that product, right? And put in some product marketing to it. From the time also, you have to think beyond that. It goes, then then that product has to be sold, right? And then it has to be serviced and supported. It's such a holistic process that I'm noticing that actually the role of a product manager or someone who's leading, for example, in my case, as a chief of product inclusion in general, this work goes well beyond the realm of product. And you have to, at all levels, keep asking the question, who's left out? Who did we not think of? Who should be included here? And in doing so, you have to think about many different stakeholders, many different parts of the business cross-functionally. So I find myself educating across our marketing teams, collaborating as well with them. The same thing with legal, same thing with our sales department, same thing with, so yeah. And it has been bringing an awareness to the people that design, develop, code, everything and say, hey, for example, when we're coding and we're thinking about you know, inclusive language that ends up being on the outside of the code. So what you produce, um, did we use in language that is inclusive? And I would say, what, did we do that internally as well? Are we taking care and being, are we governing and being ethical on the use of the data and how we use the data, even when it's something that a consumer can't see? So internally, for example, if you use zip code in your coding, did you ask yourself the question, should we be using that because it could infer someone's income? Or did you ask yourself that if you did have to use that, are there any areas of potential bias that you're creating even at the level of the code where the end user can't see? And that's the level of rigor and education and et cetera that I'm having to do to keep in bringing top of mind, how are we being unintentionally exclusive or exclusionary in everything that we do? I have to jump in because this is this is a perfect opportunity, Giselle, where we, we have this a lot on the show where we talk about frameworks or structures or approaches. But what I feel typically has the best impact is to make it easy to chew on, mm-hmm. right? And then provide real examples of this inaction, you know, to show that it's going out there and it's actually happening rather than just 
talking about it and not assuming you are, but I've seen it happen where people talk about the best ideas, but they've never tried it. So, you know, with this in mind, is there a story that's close to home that has taken advantage of this, for lack of a better term, this model, this behavior that you're, you're looking to increase in, in organizations? There are many stories. So <laughs> I could have just I, said, do you have a story or an example? Give a story. <laughs> uh, okay. So, yes, you know, what I just mentioned as far as even at the level of coding, et cetera, like we have surfaced because we did basically kind of a an audit and we wanted to check and see within our products as the end user sees where are we using outdated exclusionary language in what we're doing right so we started there we started to kind of do this audit across our products and you know places where people are reviewing products or reviewing um, help functions in our products or wherever they see language right that comes to them where do we use words like blacklist and whitelist and black box and red line or you know slave master where did we use some of those kind of things we saw those we were able to easily fix it but then we started to, because I'm prompting this as well, but we started to look further and deeper. All right, that's what people could see. What about the things that sometimes they can't always see? So what else is under the hood, if you would? And so we have been going into our chief data office and we've been going into those who are coding and we are finding instances where we're also using either language that might not be as inclusive, still like within the code, et cetera. And sometimes it's even because groups of people might be working on some of these things and they're located in other countries and it's not, or it's been the standard and the norm to use certain phrases and words, even in the code itself, right? That's one area. And then the second area has been in the data use itself. So part of product inclusion isn't just in the language that's used, right? It's in the data that's used. So when you have a product that depends on data, and if your inputs are things like someone's age and you're using that in some way, right, to as part of your product or someone's zip code or someone's et cetera, well, you really have to be intentional and go back and track that. And that is a project. These projects and these stories are they have chapters and episodes because once we started to find certain areas, we have to continue to follow that that train and, and see what we can do then to to fix it and to establish some standards moving forward. So we have found again areas in which we're like, hmm, how are we coming to this conclusion? You know, is this truly AI ethics and or machine learning ethics? Like, are we using, are we governing this data appropriately? Are we being truly responsible? Or are we creating certain areas of like unintentional bias? And we have to be real with ourselves. And when we've, we have noticed certain areas in which, you know, we're coming up, for example, with maybe a turnover story or a predictive story of some sort. And we're using certain elements of data that really, when we think about it, you shouldn't. You know, like it could it could be discriminatory, it could be biased. So that level of inspection is what we are doing and what we're committed to. You know, and we've also seen areas where our products haven't really hit that mark of accessibility, for example. And we have worked with now we're working with, you know, like a consultant and groups that specialize in these areas and also bringing in groups of people that can advise us who have disabilities themselves to test our products. And we're listening to their feedback and learning what we need to change, even from the level of coding. Is there like a, a benchmark in testing that says you've done inclusivity right? You know, like there's so much survivorship bias, usage bias. I mean, the word bias could be pre I could put any word before it, but there's just so much in product due to lack of resources or time or mm -hmm. worse training. 
how can you effectively say you've done it right? Not you, but in the general sense, the you of product management. I think we're still figuring that out at our company, but I think one of the aspirational goals is to ensure that those, as many people that can test this, whatever it is that we're putting out, if you we get that diverse input of testers and they sign off on this, then we're heading towards something good. And when I say that, I mean, we, you, you know, talking about using our internal audiences. So we have, for example, every company has like ERGs or uh, employer resource groups. And we test, we have one for people with disabilities. We have one for uh, people of color. We have one for LGBTQ plus communities. We have a lot, right? So before we, we do something, did we check with them, right? And that's one level. Did we check with, you know, our client advisory groups that care about inclusion and want to weigh in on this? Did we test this with an outside group as well? Like, so some different levels of testing. And if we can get it right with those groups before we put something out, to me, that's already a a level of success that, hey, we've done some inclusion. The other aspect is, did we ask the right questions across all of these different factors that I just mentioned from you know, the time that you're ideating to the time that you're like putting out a product, selling it and, and your, your customers are using this thing. Right. And you're maybe even providing layers of support there. Do we have some sort of checklist, some sort of detail and structure that everyone has to abide by? Everyone should be asking, for example, did we leave someone out at every level of what I just mentioned? And if everyone's able to check yes or no, we did not leave somebody out. No, we did not. We didn't leave them out as we were doing our user design or our user testing, we didn't leave it out as we were designing it, as we did product marketing, as we did marketing for the corporate, as we did sales, as we did our service, we didn't leave any of these people out. Right. And if you can do that across the board, then to me, you're having some real inclusion. I love that. Jeff is, is uh, if for those who are listening to our podcast, he is uh, clapping using the microphone. It is a very, <laughs> very strange thing that has occurred here uh, today on Clubhouse. You know what else is strange too? Sorry, just speaking of accessibility and inclusion, and I'm reading through the closed captions and it says, Jeff is Lizzo with you. (laughs) So (laughs) we have to, I think it's great that we're seeing Clubhouse and other platforms take an interest and work towards improving accessibility. And then, you know, there's just that challenge in that last mile, right? Where somebody who's listening gets to hear what Red was saying and somebody who's unable to, to hear thinks that Jeff is Lizzo, which I'd be proud <laughs> to be a, a, a multi-platinum or I don't know how, how successful she is. But anyway. <laughs> I don't know. She just won, uh, what was it, the Emmys? She just won an Emmy. We'll go with it. That's okay. <laughs> so, so Giselle, my question for you is, How do we get that to happen? Because I'm going to admit, we have programming at the Product Management Center, and this is an issue that we struggle with too. So I'm not coming from a place necessarily just of judgment, what's happening with Clubhouse, but curiosity as well. Like, How do we get teams to go that extra mile where we don't just say, all right, there's words there. They might not be all that accurate. Like, How do we get that, put more resources there instead of maybe somewhere else? Yeah, any thoughts on that? You mean, how do we get people to actually do the things that I'm talking about? (laughs) Well, I I guess it's kind of a little bit of what you're saying, building on what you're saying, but also just like this example with the clubhouse closed captioning. And they've thought they've done a lot of the things I presume that you've talked about, and they're starting to design for a broader set of users, but they're still just not investing to bring all users to parity, I guess is, is what I'm getting at. How do you get somebody to move beyond just like the, hey, we've done something for them and we hope it's better than nothing? Versus let's go the extra mile. Great question. Yeah. 
So part of, I think every, every person who's leading these efforts in their organizations with product management is you need to realize that this is an iterative process, that this is not a one and done. So once you do one release of something, you need to go back and constantly test that, test that, test that, go back and check because you put something out today, like closed captions, doesn't mean that the closed captions are working to their best of, you know, ability. So great that there's a feature available, but with something like that, that uses, that has to learn, right? Or that even has to pick up words that are being spoken, like you need to test that. And you need to test to see if it understands people of different... Their uh, first language? Yes, language, you're right. right. So an accents, excuse me, that's what I was looking for. So people of different accents or people who their intonation and speech tone is different perhaps because of a disability. Like, are you able to test that product on those people or did you just go out and buy a service that does closed captioning and you think you think you're good now because you just, you know, went through that, but did you apply extra level of rigor? And I'm just going to keep saying that because that's how I see this whole practice of inclusion in product it is rigor. It is a practice of rigor. You need to go and check many things. So, and I'll give you another quick example. Just because today you probably created an opportunity where you're collecting different gender identities or different pronouns, because that is today doesn't mean that in the future you're not going to have to go back and update that because that is something that can continue to expand. We saw how it was just LGBT. LG, LG, I forgot what it was at the beginning, but it was just a few letters. And now it's expanded to where now it's, you know, IA, it's IA plus, it's a whole, it's a whole, you know, and it might continue to. So you got to be relevant. You have to use agility to go back. You have to use a level of rigorous detail and testing to continue to go back and check those markets and research to see if you're relevant. All right. Thank you so much, Giselle. We are here with the Chief of Project Inclusion at ADP. Giselle is speaking for her own opinions, not on behalf of her company, but speaking on her own opinions of what she's observed and what she's doing and seeing to works. I've got some more questions for Giselle, but I think, Red, I think it's time if anybody in the audience had questions or wanted to comment on where they see product equity and inclusion as important or where they've seen failures in that. So, Red, the stage is yours to manage for a moment here. Well, thank you so much. And for those who are new to what this looks like, if you're listening to the podcast, then unfortunately you can't ask a question because this conversation has already ended. It's it's in the past. That's podcast work. But for those of you who are here live with us today, go to the chat screen on the bottom of your screen for Clubhouse. There's a bubble. And if you click on that, it should take you to another screen where you can enter your questions. If you want to raise your hand, please do so. We'll call you up on stage as long as this is relevant and you don't look like spam. We'll be happy to pull you up on stage. We've had this happen in the past where it's not just about questions. But for those, I think the next step is also to make sure if you are shy and you don't want to ask a question and you would like us to ask it on your behalf, you can also message us directly or via the Slack channel. If you're not aware of the Slack channel, we have a Slack group for over 1,500 product managers where it is, again, a very safe community of PMs looking to help each other and make opportunities for others. And so this isn't about recruiters. This is about you finding a PM and saying, come on in. You'd love it over here. Look at all these perks. Although, Jeff, I don't think we've had an episode about the perks of being a PM. 
you know. I don't know. It's all I could tell is it's a tortured life, but one with great <laughs> responsibilities. Red, while you're waiting for somebody here to raise their hand, I've got a question from online. Giselle, are there any books, resources, or frameworks that you found particularly helpful that you would recommend? And I'm assuming by frameworks, maybe it's a blog post, because I think you've already given us some frameworks for thinking about this. But any books, frameworks, or resources you would recommend? So over here trying to take myself off of mute. Yes, <laughs> there is a book, I believe, you know, there's a lot of great resources that have come out of Google. So Cat Holmes and the other book that's about product inclusion, right? That's Designing for All by, why is her name escaping me? The person who leads up the- Annie Jean Baptiste? Yes, yes. Awesome book. And I think that just learning about inclusion in general- you know, and, and areas of inclusion. So not just talking about like inclusion in products and how to how to make sure that we embed that in frameworks and et cetera. But I think learning about aspects of it, I would say follow people who write about, you know, inclusion in general. Did you, you know, learn about intersectionality, learn about disability inclusion that goes outside of just accessibility because a pet peeve that I have is when you Google or when you search for terms such as like, you know, inclusion in products, the most thing that comes up is always centered around accessibility, as if that's the only thing that we're talking about. It's not. We have to consider people of all diverse representation. It's educational levels, it's, you know, generations, ages, religions, ethnicities. It's all, There's a lot there. So I would say those two authors have amazing books. I would say look into other topics as well that just are about DEI in general so that you can use that as an inspiration. All right. And then I have another question here. So how much is uh, DEI as an organization? How are the frameworks and processes that you would use for best practices there different from product inclusion and product equity? Like, is there anything unique about product inclusion and equity? Or is this just an extension and repackaging of similar frameworks and and thinking approaches? Definitely not an extension and not a direct reflection of a company's internal DE&I. And I will say that because at the level of product, and Jeff, you mentioned this before about how product managers have this great, I think it was you, or if not Red said it, one of you mentioned how there's such a great opportunity that product managers have to be able to influence change in this area. And I think that often we have a greater area of influence to innovate and to lead with creativity, to lead with, you know, from a competitive, even competitive advantage standpoint with when you're working with product versus an organization's internal DE&I side of the house where often there's a lot of budgetary constraints. There's a lot of like, there's a lot of different areas in which those organizations have to put their focus and they're not always as quick to innovate and to recreate practices and policies. So I think to me, there's a point of divergence, but I think that both can influence each other. Like in our organization, I use our DNI office people to help weigh in. They are one of this, one of those voices that I kept talking about, like those diverse voices that we bring in to check what we're doing. We ask, Hey, what are the standards that people are, you know, using and thinking when it comes to language around you know, how you talk about sexual orientation or when you're talking about this and that and the other, they, there's there's a level of like expertise that comes there that you should leverage. Yet, 
you don't stay there. You innovate and you you take what you're hearing from markets, from the competition, from what you know from thought leadership, and you go above and beyond even sometimes what is happening in DNI in your own organization. But eventually, the innovation that comes out of the product should actually go back and inform what the DEI can do as well. There's so many opportunities that you'll surface that you could say, hey, organization, I think we need to be doing XYZ when it comes to our own practices. And then I have a, a question while I think while Red manages the stage or, or other people prepare their own questions. So real quick, I've seen inclusive product design literature talk about you know the mainstream user versus the extreme user. Is that a common, I don't want to say dichotomy, but classification? Or is that classification itself potentially harmful in some way? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's potentially harmful. I'm a big proponent to not assume and I think we make so many assumptions and it's actually part, it's interesting because it's part of how we traditionally design. We think in terms of a persona, we think in terms of universal design and veering away a little bit from that, but it doesn't, like I said before, it doesn't have to be a mutually exclusive conversation. You can still create universal design, but still create intentionally for levels of inclusion. So. For example, um, there may be like even I'll use Google again since we just mentioned them. So Google Doodles, right? Those little doodles that come up when we do our searches on Google and it has like some kind of interesting tidbit. Google has been designed for the universal user to be able to have a quick, easy, simple experience on how you search for information on the Internet. That's universal design. But then when you think about this inclusion aspect, They've made sure to make it responsive enough that if you are logging in from India, you can see the celebration of an Indian inventor that was submitted by an artist in India or someone in India who, who created that doodle. And if you're in the United States, it's responsive enough to say, hey, today's the day where we're celebrating such and such holiday or shout out to this black women in STEM or the next day it's something about, you know, an Asian Pacific uh, or AAPI community leader or something, you know, so you can do both. And I think we have to be careful to not only think about the all, we have to think about both the all and the sum. I'm jumping in here. I got to say, I mean, and Giselle, this is from one of the last companies I, I remember working with, McDonald's, mm -hmm. before I switched gears and companies and talking to them about, you know, the most basic stuff like ADA compliance. Yeah. And, you know, inclusiveness has been around for so long. And yet there is this opportunity right now where there is more focus, where distributed workforce, where digital is now forced upon many that didn't even want it, and for many who did. But when it comes to, in general, what are the, like, in your opinion, the biggest forcing factors that are accelerating this inclusivity? And then we do have an open question. So after you answer this one, we're going to go to that. Sure. But I'm curious to see what you think is what's potentially causing and stimulating. Hmm. And if this was an enzyme, what would it be? I think that <laughs> there, it's a societal thing. The more that the world becomes, and this goes back into my hat of like, when I talk about an inclusive future of work, these are the types of conversations that I had all the time and I will continue to have and inform how we strategize what we're doing with our products. But I think that when you pay attention to trends out in the world, you're noticing, first of all, generations in the workforce 
are becoming younger, right? So we, we have now such a mixed group of people in the workforce than ever before. Um, but that is a reflection of society. So we now have this Gen Z that we have that are starting to have buying power and we have millennials and all kinds of people. And I don't know if, if you know, the audience realizes, but like even just the Gen Z generation is identifies as personal identification more diverse than ever before. So they are okay with saying, hey, I have a disability. This is the type of disability that I have. You know, they're okay with like, just look at the Emmys last night and look at what we were talking about Lizzo, for example. When Lizzo accepted her award, she was shouting out and saying, this is for black girls like me. This is for big girls like me. People who she calls it, she says, you know, big women, you know, she advocates for that. And we saw case after case after case example of people getting up and doing that because it's a societal thing. It is people are saying you have to take me for who I am. And that means all of what I represent. So that is my my uniqueness that I bring to the table is my faith or lack thereof. It's my body size. It is my different way of thinking because I might be neurodivergent. It is all kinds of things. And that is becoming more prevalent. So that has to be reflected in our workplaces, in our products, in the things that we want to engage with, et cetera. Very, very insightful. Thank you, Giselle. I have to say, I'm going to shift gears away from questions that we might have to what matters more is our audience. And it's uh, very helpful to see. And again, I will only mention first names for confidentiality. But Emma had written, if you want to take a look into the chat, as Giselle mentioned, uh, accent, it reminded me of a lack of diversity in AI voice that can sometimes take away the authenticity of the story. I'm curious to know what is Giselle's thoughts on improving AI voice. Thank you. Love that from that Emma. Question. Thank you, Emma. Emma, there's a there's a friend that I have who's working on a, a chatbot and intelligent assistant named Clara, C-L-A-I-R-A. Clara was trained on the voices and the kind of like nuance that comes with Afro-Latina or Afro-Latino representation. So for example, today, when you're able to ask Alexa or Siri or whatever device a question, and, and if you were to say, and I'm going to speak in Spanish for just a second, arroz is a word for rice in, in uh, Spanish. So if you were to say, Alexa, turn off el arroz, right? It might not quite understand what you're saying there, but with an assistant like Clara, it's being trained on a bilingual data set. It's being trained on nuance. Like for example, if you asked it something a little nuanced and you'll be, you know, something that's very cultural, right? For whatever culture, then it could kind of understand that. And maybe even pick up on different accents because of the training that it was trained on for voices was used for different accents. I'll share one more with you. I'm working with a group on a side project that I have called Nifty Collective. It's bringing disability inclusion into Web3 and metaverse spaces. And we're working with a group that's with people who have uh, intellectual disabilities or have like Down syndrome. And there's another AI that's being trained on the actual voices and input of many different women with Down syndrome. And their voices are being picked up the way that they intonate their words, the way that they voice is all being included in this. So I think just more representation of diversity in the data set will help to move that needle. Thanks, Emma. 
Giselle, I have to say, I very much appreciate the high-level ways of thinking about this and then the specific examples that, that you've been giving in these first 45 minutes or so of conversation. I want to continue to give you chances for frameworks and examples, but I do have a philosophical question that I'm just curious about. So from my perspective, what I'm seeing is, is a rise of this position of your chief of product inclusion. I'm seeing head of product equity, head of product inclusions. I'm seeing more and more companies have a role for this. And I'm curious, what do you think about this trend where more and more companies are having a role dedicated to product inclusion and product equity? What are the benefits? What are maybe some drawbacks? What do you think? Well, first I'm going to tell you why I think that's happening. And I think from my perspective and because of from my influence, this role didn't exist. And it was created in part at my company because I wanted to make a difference and a change. I wanted to see something different. And when you start to notice areas of opportunity and areas where there can be some improvements and you do and say something about it, because for example, in my case, again, I represent lots of areas of diversity and I wanted to see whatever we put out there in the world should think about and consider, which is, you know, being inclusive is being considerate. It should consider different groups of people like me. And so I wanted to see that. And then thus, you know, I've been pushing to create these, these uh, opportunities and avenues. So that's one thing. I think the spur of it, you're going to start noticing that a lot of the people behind these roles, they care about it on a personal level. It means something to them, right? And even probably the people on this call, you know, it means something to us personally. And I think we'll continue to see this because from a business level, like I mentioned before, if you want to sell to diverse markets, you have to include those diverse markets in whatever it is that you're trying to sell to them. And I'm just going to keep it like that on a basic level. Hope that answers your question, Jeff. It does. And if I could go a little deeper, because that, that's actually a, a familiar story. So I know at least one, I believe two other uh, people in a similar role who advocated for the position and created it. And so on the one hand, it, it seems excellent because now companies are starting to invest resources and mind share to product equity. I guess the thing that personally has me a little concerned, and I want to know if it's a valid concern and if there's anything that companies could do to overcome it, if it is, is that we risk getting to a place where inclusion and equity are Giselle's job or Anne's job. It's somebody's job. And it's not how we do product management at every single person and every single level. So I'm curious. I think the rise of the job is actually by and large positive. And my question is though, how do we, I think it's not that this is happening, but how do we avoid it being somebody else's responsibility and everybody else gets to just do what they do versus it should be embedded in all that they do from my, my standpoint? I feel like the answer is in what you just said. It has to be embedded in what everybody does at every point. And so in my role, I don't just work with our product teams. I work with our marketing teams, our legal teams, our, our sales teams, our service teams, our support teams, because product is like this. If you, if you would envision for just an example for a moment, like an assembly line or, or some type of conveyor belt, let's use that a conveyor belt where something is put, you know, think of a product that you bought on Amazon, right? That has to go through, first of all, it's your user interface that you go through an app and you go and you, you're online and you're putting some car product in your cart. It goes from there 
to like a fulfillment center. From that fulfillment center, it's going to like the the warehouse and the people from the warehouse are packaging it. The warehouse then packages all of that up and then puts it in a truck or in some sort of a plane or some, they have to, you know, do the shipping part of it. And then finally, you know, eventually it's going to get to you. And there's many processes in between there that I probably skipped. But that's how I see product inclusion. Product inclusion doesn't start and end with our product teams. It has to go through many hands and whoever, whatever hands are touching that product from the time that it gets ideated, from the time that we are sitting here servicing a client, helping a client, supporting them because of the product that they're using, all of those channels, all of those channels, including even like the people who post about the product on social media, right, in your company, it has to have the same level of standard and the same level of inspection and checklist. Again, like I said before, did we leave anyone out? And that's one of the questions, but there's several questions that everyone should be asking. And they should be asking the same kind of questions and some nuance depending on what their role is. But I guess, uh, Jeff, what I'm trying to say is the role will stay and live and die in the product or in me or in the whoever's heading up this function if we limit it to the product conversation. We have to make certain standards that go across the organization and get the right people, the right areas of leadership to weigh in and work in connection with you. You should be working cross-functionally with all types of groups in your organization to make sure that this works. That's what we're doing. Love it. And so if there's somebody who's in a similar position as you were a bit ago, where you have this passion, you have this desire to see more inclusion in the product space, and their company may not have this role, do you have any suggestions for them? I don't know if I can leave it at that or if I need to expand, but do you have any suggestions? Have the role. Try to think about making the role, especially if you have a product that is going out to certain people. And if you don't have the enough function of, you know, individuals who are, you know, able to dedicate themselves to that, I would say start at least, at least by creating some sort of a checklist. And there are many resources online and some of the books that I mentioned. Start at least by creating a checklist that you hold people accountable and you share with those teams. What should they be thinking about as they're doing their work, as they're designing, as they're researching, as they're developing, coding, like Whatever it is that someone's doing, what should they be thinking about? And at least furnish them with that. I'm just curious, as somebody's wanting to advocate for the creation of a, a product equity role, product inclusion role, what would you say that they should like kind of describe as their responsibilities? Like, What should they pitch that, hey, please make this role and, and this is what I'll do for the, the company and this will be what my plan is for the next year, five years, or however long you would plan out in making that pitch? From the onset, you have to make sure that there's buy-in from leadership all the way down. Same thing as, it is, you know, this is the same issue that diversity officers encountered where a lot of companies hired diversity officers in the, over the past few years, but then there wasn't budget to actually make change. So you need to first make sure that, first of all, this is a message that's coming from the top. Your CEO to the chief of product to all kinds of things need to say, or chief of technology, et cetera, needs to say, this is how we are focusing and what we're committed to, right? There has to be that. Secondly, there has to be budget. And, you know, you're going to have to buy certain tools, you know, invest in certain areas, hire more people, you know, do things. And there needs to be some dollars invested into, into that. And then finally, there has to be an ability for you to be free 
to move cross-functionally across the organization. Don't let the function be siloed into product because that is not going to be as effective as uh, what we were just mentioning a, a minute ago about my metaphor with the conveyor belt. Yeah, that to me is one of the biggest warning flags and kind of saddest realities for all too many companies. You know, I'm not going to name any particular companies, but when it's, oh, we've got this chief diversity officer and they're the ones that make decisions on X, Y, and Z, but they don't have any budget. It's like, how do we do this without money and people? Uh, So definitely a good point that if you want to actually see product inclusion and and equity, you've got to tie some metrics to it and you got to put some resources into achieving those metrics, at least in my mind. Any comment on that? I agree. Yeah. (laughs) That's my comment, Jeff. Excellent. Excellent. All right. So we have our audience is aspiring product managers and product managers of all experience levels, just trying to hear what others are thinking about and what they're doing. Any action steps that you would recommend to a product manager or an aspiring product manager that they should take tomorrow if they're inspired to be more equitable, to be more inclusive in the products that they develop? Yeah. Number one, ask yourself how, what are your own gaps and assumptions that you make when it comes to inclusion or diversity or equity, like what are your, face that for yourself, because whatever that is for yourself, it's going to show up in your work. That's number one. So it starts with, with ourselves. Secondly, start to educate yourself. So like we'd mentioned before, don't just read about product inclusion and things like that. Read about actual inclusion and diversity and equity. And, you know, what are certain aspects, what do certain aspects mean? What do people experience like try to follow some people who are actually people with disabilities follow people who are of different races and ethnicities than your own follow people of different religions like start to educate yourself by exposing yourself to people's lived experiences because that will help you learn their perspective and what it is that they might be needing and looking for in a product right i'll give you one quick example on that note Um, I love to speak with examples as I feel like it solidifies. So, you know, even someone who follows the Muslim religion, they have to, uh, when financially speaking, they have to invest even in their, the way that they do investments, they have to think about it in a way that is halal, which in a way that is like holy or, or approved. So they can't give investment dollars or make, or their stock funds and things cannot be going to anything that relates to alcohol you know, pornography or any of those kind of things. So if you have a financial tool that deals with investments and things like that, did you consider that group of or audience to make sure that there's an option that they can invest in, right? So even something as simple as that, that sometimes we don't take a moment to think about, but think about all of your users. So I would say do that. And practical step, next thing that you could do tomorrow, go back into your work, take a look, at what you're doing, what was the last thing you designed? Or if you're not in design just yet, or you haven't developed products yet, but if you were to kind of think of, like do this mental exercise, if you were to think of a next product or a feature that you were to design, how would you go through a mental process of making sure that you're not leaving someone out? All right, Giselle, thank you so much. Sorry, I'm a little slow on the mute button. It's kind of funny that we've been doing this for uh, (laughs) a year and a half. uh, And on the Zoom stuff, muting and unmuting, I'm still a failure at it. But so grateful to have you here sharing your perspective, uh, your frameworks, your examples and resources. It's time to just get to concluding thoughts. And and Red, you manage our stage and did so admirably reading some questions in chat and that you found and that were posted in the product management Slack group. Just, I want to give you a chance for concluding thoughts as to 
Anything you took away from Giselle or anything that you've taken away from your experience that, that you've dedicated with the Product Management Center to building a more inclusive future? For those who are listening to this, if you feel some sort of pushback, either within yourself or your organization, that is contrary to what we've discussed today, instead of just following that as a guide, push back and reach out to one of us. I know that everyone who's speaking today is accessible through Twitter or LinkedIn or through the Slack group. But I feel that if you are ever choosing in your life to compromise for work over for what is right, uh, let us at least help provide you with support for what is right. And if you're new to product management, be aware and be okay knowing this still exists. So don't call out your organization. Don't try to be the noisy loud one. If you're new to the space, call somebody in, build advocates within your organization that can help you push for change. I'm only saying this because in your career, you're going to notice that while we talk about what is ideal, the path is long. And if you try to rush it without understanding all the different levers that need to be pulled to make something like this work, that is not the type of person an organization typically wants to hire. Maybe a startup, which could be a better place for you, but larger companies, they're not telling you to be a cog in the machine. They're telling you to understand how to work it. And so if you need help working it, you can talk to Lizzo, aka Jeff, uh, or uh, Giselle, or anybody that we've referenced. Thank you. And Giselle, I want to give you a comment because I think that's Red's perspective. I appreciate him sharing it with the group. Where do you stand, before we get to concluding thoughts, if you have a moment, on just rushing in and really fighting for a big step right away? Or have you found, yeah, what's the right pace? How do people manage that in your perspective? If you have the influence, you can rush in. I think you can rush in and create some change and go for like a quick win at the beginning. Maybe, you know, and I think that sometimes we might also make an assumption that uh, the the or it's the organization versus me or but you'd be very surprised and i have been pleasantly surprised to find so many people wanting this but just probably didn't know how to go about it wanting to truly be inclusive they stand for it so many people have come out to of the organization just kind of <laughs> different parts across the organization saying oh my gosh i'm so glad that you're here i'm so glad this position exists now you know I thought our company was great, but now I think it's even better now. I know we have a lot of work to do, but I'm so glad that we're thinking about this now. You would be surprised and you would have an opportunity. If you have the opportunity to, to, right, if you have the leverage to do so, you can run quick at the beginning and you can make like at least some quick wins. And to Red's point, I understand as well, like there is this balancing act that we have to, that we navigate and and I've had to do that balancing act myself, too, where it's like you cannot come and solve world hunger, right? You have to come and get some quick wins, work with what's feasible, understand that other parts of you know people developing products, their sole job is not product inclusion. Their job is many other competing priorities in different areas that they have as well. And inclusion is going to be a part that they're going to have to learn over time to embed into the work that they already do. All right, Giselle, appreciate it. I want to give you a chance for concluding thoughts. I know we're over time, so take as much time or as little as you want, but I just want to give you space to wrap things up for the audience and what you want them to take away with. I just want to tell the audience quickly, I first commend you for either being present here on this live session or listening to the podcast. It means that there is a lot of you know, positive hope for our future 
where people like you are trying to learn about these things. You're taking an hour out of your day to listen to some, you know, information from Lizzo and team here, right? <laughs> uh, <and> what, is, <laughs> what is product inclusion all about and how can you do it? And I think that in and of itself is an awesome step. And I commend you, actually. So the, my last words are just an applause to our audience who's listening. Thank you, Giselle. Thank you for joining us. And, and my concluding thoughts, I want to echo exactly what you said, Giselle, that, and also read. Like, this is a, a big process, and it, it could be pretty scary because there's a lot of emotions at play, especially when somebody has felt invisible, unseen, unheard, uninvited to product innovations for all too long. It could be a fairly passionate area, and it could be somewhat daunting. And I would just encourage everybody to do as Giselle said, to understand where you're coming from, how your perspectives might be different from others, and not be afraid to dive in and and find ways where you could drive your standard success metrics, but orient that in a way that's driving your standard success metrics and and benefiting a a greater number of people. Uh, Because that's generally your job as a product manager is to, to benefit your customers. And all too often, People have had a narrow view of who their customers could or should be, and I'd like to see us broaden that. And the research shows that you can broaden it to great success, and you have people like Giselle fighting to do that, and uh, it's great to see. So thank you all for joining us. We'll be here next week talking about product management for hardware products. And uh, just a reminder, we at the University of Washington have the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator. We just admitted our fall cohort, and they are uh, people who are demonstrated a commitment to inclusion and a readiness to become product managers. And we are empowering professionals from historically marginalized communities to land their first product management role. We need your help. We need everybody's help. We need volunteers for mock interviews. We need volunteers for connecting with them in small groups. And we need you to hire them. So reach out to the Product Management Center. Check it out. Volunteer with the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator. You too could help us transform lives, inspire the next generation, and build a more inclusive future. Thank you, Giselle. Thank you, Red. That is the end of today's show.